Well, good morning to each one and greetings in Jesus' name. Counted a privilege to be here with you this morning. I would have liked if my wife Beverly could be here with us today, but uh, it just seemed best if she would stay home this time. My four little boys are now four big boys. He said that this morning. Someone mentioned four little boys. Uh, he's not here right now, maybe, but um, but yeah, my boys have grown up. My youngest one is 16, so sometimes it's best if mom stays home and I come up here, and depending on what's going on. But it's good to be here. I enjoyed the Sunday school lesson. I enjoyed the challenges, and that song we just sang was very fitting. Lead me to Calvary. Is that your experience? Is that your, is that your heart cry this morning? Some time ago, I was asked if I would share a message on non-resistance. In the past month, several of our Ebenezer High School students are studying non-resistance versus pacifism. And so I was asked by our high school teacher to address two aspects of non-resistance. First, contrasting biblical non-resistance with pacifism. And then second, how can we contribute to peace among men? Today, for the most part, I will assume that you know and believe the Bible doctrine of non-resistance. And trust, too, that you are fully persuaded in this doctrine. In the first part of this message, I will be sharing a few thoughts on non-resistance, and then we will be looking at pacifism and then contrasting the two beliefs. And so let's begin. The essential doctrine of non-resistance is taught by Jesus himself. Jesus said, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. From his words, we see that non-resistance is very personal. It has to do with you. It has to do with me. I tell you, not to resist an evil person. Love your enemies. Non-resistance is very personal. Non-resistance is about the Christian's response to others who wrong him. It's about living in peace. Non-resistance is not about social issues. It's not about a Christian's response to people who wrong others. It assumes that the Christian stands apart from general society even though he is in it. Non-resistance is not a method for social reform, but a personal response to evil. Non-resistance is for the born-again Christian, not for the ungenerated man unregenerated man. It is for those who are willing to let loose of everything in this world and suffer for his sake. 
It holds no assurance of safety, of life, or possessions. The non-resistant Christian simply trusts God, not human agencies, for his care and protection. Non-resistance is for the church. It is not for the state. It is not designed to meet the needs of society and civil government. It is for the society of the redeemed. Now, we believe and teach separation of church and state. We believe in the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. According to Romans 13, verse 1, the authorities that exist in this world are appointed by God. God has ordained that civil authorities govern general society. They make laws, they enforce laws, they punish the evildoer, and they see that justice is carried out. God has not ordained that non-resistant Christians function in that capacity. And so, in a nutshell, non-resistance is personal, it is peaceable, and non-political. That is simply the Bible doctrine of non-resistance. And so when I was preaching this message a couple weeks ago at Ebenezer, the class was there and they were listening and I told them to remember the point that non-resistance is personal, peaceable, and non-political. And so I'd like to move on now and think a little bit about pacifism. What is pacifism? How much do you know about pacifism? I don't know. When I started into this study, I knew some about pacifism. I couldn't have uh, went into a lot of detail, but as I studied, I became more aware of what pacifism is, and I'd like to share some of that with you now. But pacifism is the belief that any violence, including war, is unjustifiable under any circumstances, and that all disputes should be settled by peaceful means. That is basically pacifism. A pacifist generally rejects war and believes there are no moral grounds which can justify resorting to war. War for the pacifist is always wrong. Pacifism holds that the cost of war and interpersonal violence are so substantial that better ways of resolving disputes must be found. Pacifists generally reject theories of just war. Now, just, just hearing that, that sounds like non-resistance, does it not? Sounds very similar. But let's read some more of, of what they say. And this information is coming from them. Some pacifists follow principles of nonviolence, believing that nonviolent action is morally superior and or most effective. Some, however, support physical violence for emergency defense of self or others. Some pacifists 
support destruction of property in such emergencies or for conducting symbolic acts of resistance. An example would be pouring red paint to represent blood on the outside of military recruiting offices or entering into Air Force bases and hammering on military aircraft. Not all nonviolent resistance is based on a fundamental rejection of all violence in all circumstances. Did you get that? Not all nonviolent resistance is based on a fundamental rejection of all violence in all circumstances. And so, yes, the agenda is nonviolence, but sometimes um, some, circum some circumstances may require violence. Many leaders and participants in such movements, while recognizing the importance of using nonviolent methods in particular circumstances, have not been absolute pacifist. And there's different examples we could talk about. Um, the American Civil War, also the Revolutionary War, both the American Peace Society and some former members of the Non-Resistance Society supported the Union's military campaign, arguing that they were carrying out a police action against the Confederacy, whose acts of secession they regarded as criminal. And so that's some of the information that I found on pacifism. And so while pacifism may be somewhat influenced by Jesus' teaching, it is not the biblical doctrine of non-resistance. In fact, it is not non-resistance at all. It is resistance to what are considered evil men and evils in society, and it aggressively opposes them in nonviolent ways. Pacifists not only resist, but they also apply pressure, moral, psychological, social, and political pressure to achieve their desired goals. They stop short of violence, although their nonviolent actions sometimes induce violent reactions in others. Yes, it's true. There is a part of pacifism that on the surface resembles biblical non-resistance, the spirit of love and self-sacrifice at first glance gives pacifism the appearance of spiritual correctness. However, as you study into pacifism, you will see that in reality, it is more like violent resistance than biblical non-resistance. In the end, the objective of the pacifists and violent warfare is identical. The basic philosophy underlying both is that of achieving desired goals through use of force. You see, there is a fine line between nonviolent and violent resistance. 
The basic difference is in method, not in philosophy. The hard emotion of the nonviolent and the violent resistance is the same. The pacifist may use his body to block traffic. The military will use a gun or a bomb. Pacifists, as strange as it may sound, are not at peace in their social surroundings, but in conflict. Pacifism is not peaceable. It often falls short of James chapter 3, 17 and 18, which I will read at this time. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Pacifists are not Bible peacemakers. The peace they make can only be achieved only after they have forced others into accepting their goals. Pacifism is simply not a Christian philosophy, and so a pacifist may or may not be a professing Christian. I'd like to consider now the basic differences between non-resistance and pacifism. Some of those differences we have already noticed, but I would believe the basic theological differences between Christian pacifism and biblical non-resistance has to do with the question of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ now Lord of the church only, or is he also Lord of the state? You see, on this very question hinges all the rest. How one answers this lordship question will affect his outlook on the Christian relation to the state, his responsibility to the state, his responsibility for the acts of the state, his attitude toward the payment of taxes, his view of capital punishment, his position on wars of the state, and his personal response to evil. If Christ is not now Lord of the state, then the separation of the Christian from the state is clear, and the Christian has valid grounds for separating himself from the affairs of the state. On the other hand, if Christ is Lord of both the church and the state, then the Christian could logically be active in both. In fact, the Christian may be morally obligated to see that the state be a Christian state where there is no injustice, no oppression, no bloodshed. So which way is it? Is Christ Lord of the church only? Or is Christ Lord of the church and the state? Well, I will share with you what I believe 
but I would also encourage you to study into this subject yourself and become convinced of what the Bible teaches. But I would believe the state is under the sovereignty of God, but does not operate under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church, however, is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God has ordained government and rules in the affairs of men. However, God does not hold the same relationship to the state and to its ungodly citizens that he does to the church. Down through the ages, there is an unbroken line in Christ's relationship to the church. Through the Lord of the church, whose subjects are in loving submission to him, no such line exists in his relationship to the state. Its ungodly subjects are generally in a state of rebellion and alienation of God and are actually under the dominion of Satan. And so the state must be governed by principles other than Christian principles. The institution of the church operates under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The other institution, the state, is under the dominion of Satan. And so, even though civil government is ordained of God, Jesus is Lord only to those who voluntarily submit to his lordship. Those are the people who make up the church. These people belong to the Lord, whose kingdom is not now of this world. The kingdoms of the world, on the other hand, are under the dominion of Satan, the God of this world. Over the past few weeks, we have opened up our home to a local 14-year-old who was having some trouble at his home, living with his uh, single mother. But recently, I was looking over a list of his eighth grade science lesson titles. This boy goes to our local public school. But as I looked at that list of his science lesson titles that he's currently working on, it was obvious whose dominion the public schools are operating under. I have several references we can turn to as we think about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I invite you to 1 John 5.19. I, I feel like this understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ is so important and this whole thing of non-resistance, pacifism, separation of church and state, we got to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 19, these verses speak very well for themselves. We know that we are of God. That is our position. 
in Christ under his submission. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Turn back to John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. But that will change. That will change. The day is coming when Christ will rule the nations. Turn over to uh, Revelation. Let me show you something in chapter 11, uh, verse 15 through 17. Here we have a future uh, event being uh, spoke about here in chapter 11 of the day when Christ will rule the nations. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their face and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your power, great power, and reigned. And so there we have a picture of a future event when Christ will rule the kingdom, kingdoms of this world. Now they are under the sovereignty of God. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, it says there that the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The temptation of Jesus was the temptation to governor the world. Our Lord resisted that temptation, and as his followers, so should we. And so a person's understanding of the lordship of jesus christ will affect his view of the christian's response to evil men and evils in society the non-resistant christian takes christ at his word when he says resist not evil the pacifist on the other hand must somehow reinterpret that command or simply ignore it for as it stands, it does not fit into his philosophy. The New Testament does not instruct Christians on how to influence or overcome the evils in society. 
but it does instruct Christians how to respond and to relate to those evils. Pacifism's primary goal, however, is the correction of social ills. Pacifists attempt to transform society without the transformation of sinners to saints. Pacifism is a very optimistic philosophy working for world peace in this age. However, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7 and verse 8, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The pacifist hopes that somehow this will not be, and he strives to that end. And so I told the class when I was preaching this several weeks ago, in a nutshell, Bible non-resistance and pacifism are not harmonious, but conflicting positions. They are based on different pr premises. They are guided by different philosophies. They have different objectives and goals. They engage different methods and involve different groups of people. And so today we have non-resistance or pacifism. Which way is the biblical way? I would say non-resistance. Non-resistance is the doctrine taught and it's exemplified by Christ. It was lived out by his disciples. We have the example of the apostles and even his faithful followers today have given us many examples of non-resistance lived out. And so I have in no way exhausted the whole subject of non-resistance versus pacifism, but maybe that will give you a little idea of how the two are different. Um, as, as the Mennonite groups, Mennonite churches over the past 50, 75 years, as they, as they have um, progressed, your more progressive Anabaptist Mennonite churches, they have moved from biblical non-resistance to pacifism. And you know, I would have said, looking on, that many of the liberal Mennonite churches still hold on to non-resistance. I would have thought that. But now as I have studied into that, it's not really that way. They have moved from non-resistance to the pacifism view. Many of them have. Okay, I, let's look. Oh, I will say one, one more thing. Um, if you would like to study into this in depth, David Berceau, I'm sure some of you are very familiar with him and his writings. Also, he has a lot of good things on YouTube. You can, uh, you can listen to him, watch a live talk, or even get some of his books. He goes into depth of this, into great depth 
of pacifism versus non-existence. He also goes back to the early church and to their writings other than the Bible and what they believed and what they taught. Highly recommend that. It will deepen your faith. And there's other uh, talks that he gives that I would recommend as well. One is on the eternal security and his... Um, Oh, he has a series on the book of Romans. He has two, I, I'm working through Romans now, but he has two uh, talks on the book of Romans before he even gets into chapter one. So you may find that interesting as well. But I'd like to thank now for a few minutes on how we can contribute to peace among men. We'll make this more practical here at the end. But the doctrine of non-resistance is more than not being involved in the military. It's also about living in peace among ourselves as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's about living in peace among the ungodly as well. The same principles that Jesus taught for loving our enemies, blessing them, praying for them, applies in church life, in home life, in school life, in work, and in business. The Bible gives us such clear and practical direction when it comes to this subject of living peaceably among men. Let's look briefly at a passage that will show us what living peaceably requires and also what it looks like lived out. I invite you to Romans chapter 12. I'd like to read 9 through 19, Romans 12, verse 9, through verse 19. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This passage clearly shows us that it is the will of God for the Christian to live in peace. And notice with me several things here in this passage. The first thing that stood out to me, to live in peace among men, we must be first committed 
to serving the Lord. Notice verse 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. I see a picture here of someone that is sincere in living out the Christian life. I would believe that to live in peace among men, we must be first committed to serving the Lord. We must be committed in our Christian lives. If we're not, we will easily be offended. The second thing that stood out to me in this passage, <clears throat> to live in peace among men, we must have a genuine heart of love for others. An outward focus, we see that in the first part of verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Verse 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need a genuine heart of love for others. We need that outward focus. You know, when we're focused on myself, me and myself and I, it doesn't take much for us to become easily offended, easily hurt. But when our focus is outward, it makes a difference in how we view life. The third thing that stood out to me, to live in peace, we must be humble in spirit. Verse 16, be of the same mind, one toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Humility, I believe, is very important in living peaceably among others. The fourth one I notice here, to live in peace among men, I will believe that vengeance belongs to God. In the end, God will make all wrongs right. My calling as a Christian is to live peaceably. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you. Do your part. Live peaceably with all men. Verse 19. Do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When conflict arises in life, it seems important at such times to have the last words. We want our side of the story to be heard. I believe you know what I mean. It seems very important to be heard. I have found when such conflict arises, 
it's best to say as little as possible. The less we say, the better off we will be. When we start to talk, we often end up saying too much. I found that to be true in my life. Yes, it may be true what we have to say, but it would often be better not to say it. It's better to say nothing or text nothing than let a regret what you have said or what you have text. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus gave us the perfect example on how to deal with conflict. None of us will ever suffer like Jesus suffered. Why did he suffer so extremely? 1 Peter 2, 21, 22, and 23 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Folks, here is our perfect example. When conflict arises in life, be it in church or in our home, with neighbors or even with the ungodly in our work, here is our perfect example. You know, generally, the person in the wrong does most of the talking. He or she is the one who will spread the stories. Let them talk. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said very few words in the time leading up to his death. He did speak occasionally, but his words were very short and to the point. Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously. For our example, I'd like to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 3 and read 8 through 18. When I was speaking to the class several weeks ago on this part about living peaceably among men, how we can contribute to that, I encouraged the class to, um, in their essay, which they were required to write, in that essay I, re I uh, suggested that they would get their thoughts from Romans 12 and 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, when it comes to living peaceably, it's hard work. But the Bible has the answers for us. It's very clear. We have it in Romans 12 and again here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so I encourage them to draw their thoughts for that essay from these two passages. And I would encourage you and myself, if you find yourself in a situation that is requiring you to live peaceably, to read these passages and also the example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. But let's read here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 
Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. And let me point something out right here. I find it interesting that when the Bible speaks about living peaceably, it also speaks of this outward focus of love and compassion for others. And here we had that in Romans 12, and it moves right over here to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if the will of God, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. <clears throat> 